Remember the original Unsolved Mysteries from back in the day when Robert Stack was the host? He always wrapped up the intro by saying, perhaps you may be able to solve a mystery. Retired FBI criminal profiler John Douglas agrees. He says in our book today that there's almost always someone out there who has information needed to complete the puzzle. The puzzle of an investigation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm super glad that you joined us today for another story from the world of true crime. After we've heard it, we're going to see where it intersects with our faith. So I want you to join forces with me to answer what I believe is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We're going to learn a very practical way to do that after we dive into today's case and listen to our awesome guest. This is Season 3, Episode 35. Our book this week is The Anatomy of Motive by John Douglas and Mark Olshacker. And our guest is a familiar one, private investigator Sheila Wysocki. She's going to help us understand what the term victimology means, how you prepare one, and why it's so important for investigations. But first, let's investigate The Anatomy of Motive. This book gives a really insightful look at the root of all crimes, the motive. Whether we're talking about an arsonist, a bomber, or a killer, knowing the why can help you find the who. And that's what we're going to talk about with Sheila later on. First, though, we're going to go over some of John Douglas's most famous cases. He believes very strongly, like I do, that when you learn more about actual crimes, you can help identify other offenders ahead of time because there are patterns. There are these similarities among how and why crimes happen. There's also a lot of commonalities in how criminals progress. And what I mean by that is the ones that move to more and more violent crimes. And knowing what to look for can help us take these so-called petty crimes more seriously. Ladies, because the bulk of these very violent offenders are male, when we study their behavior, we can start to see the red flags that we might have overlooked before. And that way, we can keep ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities safer. Once in a while, you're going to find a true crime story about one of those rare individuals that truly have mental health disorders that put their behavior outside of their control. But for the most part, these men and their obsessions are not things they're compelled to do. They do them because these obsessions, these actions that they take, make them feel good because they make them feel in control and powerful and successful. Like David Berkowitz. Remember him? The infamous son of Sam? I bet you didn't know that he started more than 2,000 fires in and around New York City before he killed anyone. So the art of profiling is really an attempt to figure out where or how the next arsonist or serial killer might strike by studying the actions of the ones that have already been caught. Douglas found that offenders typically will show some sort of behavior to the people who know them best that they were involved with a crime. So the key is getting people like you and me to understand the things that we're seeing in the people around us and being willing to come forward and say something or do something. That's how Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was caught. He'd been sending correspondence to newspapers, and when his brother saw them, he couldn't believe how similar 
some of the phrases that the Unabomber used were to things that he'd seen his brother write. It took him coming forward for the FBI to be able to make an arrest and stop the killing. So why do criminals do what they do? There's no single answer, of course, but there are attitudes and behaviors that are definitely red flags. And you know how much I love to talk about red flags. John Douglas learned these warning signs from bad guys themselves during hours and hours of interviews. The first red flag seems so obvious that you wouldn't think we need to talk about it, but it's also one of the most often overlooked. When someone makes a general or specific threat to commit violence, listen to them. That's just not normal behavior. It is not just blowing off steam. William Andrews bragged to a friend that one day he was going to rob a shop, and if anybody got in his way, he was going to kill them. And guess what? He did. A man named David Burke had a terrible temper. He once even dragged his girlfriend out of her bed, choking her and nearly strangling her to death. He would call his teenage daughter vile names that I won't even repeat here. He managed the customer service office for a large airline, but when they found surveillance footage showing that he had stolen some money, they fired him. He decided he would get even with the airline. He boarded a flight and opened fire in the middle of the flight, which then slammed into a hillside, killing everyone on board. When people with volatile tempers undergo extremely stressful situations, and especially if they have easy access to weapons, that's a big, big red flag. And we need to remember not to write off alarming signals just because the person displaying them is young. Instead of saying boys will be boys, let's grab the chance for early intervention with our young men, teaching them healthy ways to cope with stress and low self-esteem, which a lot of offenders have. If we can do that, they might not feel the need to show the world that they matter by victimizing others. So what are some other alarming signs, red flags to be on the lookout for? Obsessions with women's shoes, their underwear, or an obsession with fire? Flashing? Making obscene phone calls? Peeping into windows? Theft? Animal abuse? Unusually aggressive behavior? And an extensive fantasy life are things to keep an eye out for. And of course, not every kid that has a temper or loves to daydream is going to wind up being a serial killer. These are just clues to watch for, to see if a kid needs a little extra attention and maybe some intervention. Our guest today is Sheila Waisaki, my mentor and friend. She has worked on over a 100 very complicated cases, has been nominated as one of the top 20 best Nashville private investigators, and was voted the number six most influential female private investigator. She's been featured in the Washington Post and has appeared on Anderson Cooper, Dateline with Katie Couric, A&E's biographies, I Solved a Murder, ABC's 2020, Crime Watch Daily, the podcast Criminal, of course, the podcast, The Unlovely Truth, and others. We're going to talk to her about an investigative technique called victimology, which is like profiling the victim instead of the perpetrator. She'll tell us how we do that and more importantly, why. First, I want to take a moment to remind all of you of the ways you can support the work of The Unlovely Truth and be a person of impact. Visit TheUnlovelyTruth.com and grab something from the merch store or sign up for the membership zone where you will have access to exclusive content. 
When you do, you're helping expand the impact that we can have for victims and our communities. Now let's check in with Sheila. I am so excited that you could join us uh, again. I think I counted this as like your fifth appearance. Oh my gosh, Lori. I'm going to call it the Lori Sheila show. <laughs> hey, I, that works for me. That works for me. Probably but, not. <laughs> um, well, you always give us such great insights being a PI and having done as many cases as you've done. So I'm going to flip what we talked about in the book just a little bit because, of course, John Douglas is very famous for profiling perpetrators. But he did mention something that you are, I think, an expert in, and that is performing a proper victimology. And he says that that is really the key to understanding motive, why the criminal chose that particular victim. So if you can find out as much as you can about a victim's life, who they knew, who they were involved with and things like that, it can help you narrow down who you need to be looking at. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you agree with that, but tell me why. I agree with that 100% because you have to know the patterns of the victim. Why were they chosen at that moment, at that time? Why? And that is key to any crime. I think it's important to understand the perpetrator, but it's even more important to understand the victim and what their habits were. What put them in that position? Was it someone they knew or was it a quote unquote random person? The victim was picked for a certain reason. There's a reason that that person was chosen at that time. And you got to figure it out. You made a very good point. Random crimes don't occur as often as we think they do. Correct. So. If we learn more and more about the victim, obviously there's got to be some sort of methodology or you're just being random in your investigation. So what steps do you take when you're preparing a really thorough victimology in your cases? The very first thing I do is I read up on the crime. What happened? What were the particulars of that crime? Who saw what? Talk to those people. You know, a lot of times there are names of witnesses that no one's ever talked to. Do you know how important the eyewitness or ear witness is? Very important. So I go through the incident report and then I start talking to the families. I talk to the family members. Then I go into the friends. After the friends, I go into the girlfriends. And you know what? We go back as far as the the ex-girlfriends or boyfriends. It depends on, you know, I'm thinking of a particular case that's coming up. We went so deep into Jonathan Cruz's case that I feel like I know his upbringing when he was in California and then all the way to his college years and then dating years. Having that knowledge of the victim is very beneficial on putting together what he would do and what he would not do. And the things that were, let's say it's a 911 called in as a suicide, you know, did he have depression? I don't believe he did. But the person that called in the 911 said he was depressed. I believe that I can disprove that by doing the victimology on Jonathan. 
he was a gun enthusiast. He was very knowledgeable about handling guns. That's important. Gun enthusiasts know how to actually kill themselves, I hate to say that, without um, lingering. I mean, they do. Think about that. I think it's really important in cases that you and I have worked together, especially, I've noticed this. When you talk to one person, they almost always say, well, have you talked to so-and-so? And it just, it keeps mushrooming from there. But those people are going to know who has the information. So when somebody asks, have you talked to this person? It's important to go talk to that person, isn't it? It's very important to talk to everybody involved in a case. And you and I know there's a case going on right now with us that have over a thousand witnesses. Do you know how much work it is to call a thousand people and to locate them? Thank you, Google, for coming into the world for us because we're able Gosh, to track. No yeah, we're able to track down people. Greatest tool ever. People don't always realize how much of this gets done on the fly because you get an address or a, a work address, and that person's no longer there. You can't just say, "Well, I guess I'm not going to talk to that person." You've got to start figuring out where to look for them. Right. And you and I have done cases where we fly out of town in order to do the interviews. And you got to figure out where that person is at that time. They have a pattern of going to work. They have a pattern of being somewhere. But what happens if you show up that day and they're not there? There's a lot that goes into investigating to get to that moment to find out about the victim. And that is the biggest part, I think, or component of any case. You need to find out about the victim, their habits, their patterns. Generally, you can trace that and figure out where they were, what what they were doing, and why they were there and why they were chosen. One thing I keep hearing you saying kind of underneath everything is it's all about the details. Sometimes whether an investigation is successful or unsuccessful depends on how willing the investigator, whether they're a private investigator or law enforcement, how willing they are to really dig and get all those little details. In cases that you've done, Give us an example of a detail that a lot of people might have overlooked, but it really turned things for you. I'm going to use the Lauren Agee case because that case started out as a girl was found at the bottom of the cliff. It was said that she fell off the cliff and drowned. The family was told who was up on the cliff. By digging and interviewing and going beyond the people on the cliff and going to the people surrounding the cliff on the boat, the boat dock, we found witnesses that placed another person on top of the cliff, which changed the dynamics of the entire night. So instead of having one girl, two boys, there was one girl, three boys up there and Lauren, the victim. That was important, and that was a turning point. The eyewitnesses I found 
were not in this group. They had no dog in the hunt is what I call it. And so their testimony or evidence weighed more than the people that had something to lose. And that's very important in cases. When someone's giving you information, do they have something to lose? And if you haven't listened to the Without Warning podcast, the season that is the Lauren Agee case, go do that when you're done listening to this episode, because you'll learn a lot about the kind of thing we're talking about here. And Lauren's victimology was so, so important because the official line of what happened did not in any way coincide with what people who knew her knew to be true about her character. Right. And a lot of times in cases that you and I have worked, the victims are painted as bad people or um, in my college roommate's case, loose person. It was her fault that she was murdered because she was too friendly or too outgoing. A lot of times that happens in cases. It's getting less and less, but it still happens. We see it on TV ourselves. You take the victim and you crush their character. That seems to be, in my opinion, the defense's defense. I don't care for that because that's someone's daughter or son. It's a human being. Let's go with the facts of what happened. I agree 100%. And I think I think it's worse for female victims than it is for men because there's a certain standard of being, you know, quote, the good girl. And if you're not the good girl, then like you said, maybe you deserve what happened to you is, is that twisted line of thinking. And in a lot of the cases that Douglas talked about in this book, they were solved when someone who knew something came forward. So even though all these law enforcement people were working on things, even the FBI, they only got so far until that person with just that right piece of information came forward. How important have you seen that to be in your cases? Oh, it's everything. I believe someone always knows something because it is hard for people to keep a secret It is hard for people years later, I call it pillow talk, not to share something they did. And we've seen it over and over that an ex-wife or an ex-girlfriend comes forward or an ex-husband. It's very common. And I call it pillow talk because that's when it happens. When you're most vulnerable, you share these information and you lay it on this other person thinking they're going to keep your secret. How scary is that? Honestly, Lori, I think everybody tells. And if we listen, you and I have done a lot of, um, well, actually in the last three weeks, I've done a lot on statement analysis and incident reports. If we really listen, people are telling us what happened. You listen to the tenses that they use. My favorite is listening to what they're not saying. Exactly. You ask a question and the answer does not really touch on what you ask because they're trying to put forth their own um, idea or their own agenda. 
rather than just telling you what happened? So a lot of times a question is yes or no. And if there's a circle that someone goes around, you have to bring them back to, wait a minute, my question was, they don't like that. However, when we get the case, it's usually paper. And we start from there and then have to go back and talk to people. And what we've been doing recently, myself and a couple of other investigators, is going back through old, old cases that are very popular in TV true crime just to see if there were tells early on. O.J. Simpson's one. Oh, fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about that. It's very fascinating. What would you say is, I think people would maybe call them tricks that investigators use. They're just tools to get to the truth, in my opinion. But what do you think is a particularly effective way to question someone to get them to kind of let their guard down and say things that maybe they they wouldn't? Well, I think you and I have an advantage because especially you, you come off very nice and sweet and non-threatening. And I think coming off non-threatening when you're talking to somebody, it helps a lot. And I don't go in, I seriously don't go in judging people. I don't care what you've done. Just help me understand what happened. So there's no judgment. And think that if you go in very calm and knowledgeable, but not let the person know exactly what you know, they kind of feel sorry for you if you're so stupid and want to help you and tell you what you don't know. Oh, I agree. I'll, I'll play dumb anytime if it'll help me find answers. And it just it's so interesting because you watch these TV dramas and everybody's coming at the person they're interviewing very aggressively, very threateningly, and the person just crumbles and admits whatever. That never happens. <laughs> no, or there are no cameras if it does happen in real life. Have you ever had anybody just break down and tell you something you didn't expect? Yes. Oh, yes. This is one that I'm actually keeping because we're we're going to trial, hopefully in September. But I left thinking, I can't believe they just said that. Could not believe it. I called the attorney I worked for. And he's like, are you sure? Oh, yeah, I was sure. Did you have it on tape? What do you think? I had to ask. Yeah, I, I know the answer. But of course, yes, we teach <laughs> everything almost when it is legally permissible. I want to make sure I oh, <laughs> throw yes. that in there. So, yes, it's it's important to uh, make sure you have evidence that you can turn over. Oh, yeah. I, that's another, I think, common misconception. That anything we find is is going to be able to be used in court. No, it's like anything else. There's, you have to follow the procedures to get it admitted into court. And it, we're lucky in the Cruz case, we've got a fantastic attorney. And I have yes. been so pleased with the process and watching him work because I've worked with several attorneys and this guy can get things in properly that should be brought in. And I believe we have a good judge too. 
And sadly, that makes all the difference. Justice depends on all the players that are involved. I've seen good cases get tanked by terrible attorneys. I've seen good facts get tossed out by bad judges. So, you know, that's that's probably another thing we should talk about. Doing kind of a a judgeology and an a lawyerology, <laughs> knowing everything you can about everybody that's going to influence your case. And that's the thing, you know, not only do you have to do your own investigation as a family, and then you've got to find an attorney who will take your case and take it, and I'm going to use Tom Shaw as an example, take it to the end and do a good job through the whole thing. So I've seen cases that good cases and the attorney has mucked it up so badly, missed opportunities, missed dates, turned over things that didn't need to be turned over and make excuses to the families. Well, the families don't know. And as investigators, we kind of have to keep our mouth shut or you resign like I would and then tell people what you think. And then you have the problem with judges. You've got a judge like in Lauren Agee's case, who I think it's called sanctioned twice. He's now resigned. You know, you get someone like that behind the bench. What do you do as a family looking for justice? Oh, exactly. And people can't see me, but I've been rolling my eyes really hard this whole time because I know (laughs) she's talking about, but we'll keep that between us for now. And speaking of that, what do you have coming down the pike for your fans? We are going to trial September 20th. We are going to trial for Jonathan Cruz versus Brenda Lazaro after 10 delays from 2014. And finally, the family is going to be able to tell their side of the evidence and the work that has gone into it. I cannot imagine it being better. You've got a great attorney. He's got great support. I'm one of them. No, I'm just saying, you know, there's a lot of people that are... You made a huge, huge difference in this case. Don't downplay that. Well, I think that with all the evidence we have, all the interviews that we have, and all of the things that have come to light forensically, it should be a verdict in favor of Jonathan Cruz. We'll see. Everybody out there be praying for that. This family is just one of the sweetest families. They deserve their day to publicly state what they believe happened and try to hold somebody accountable that they believe committed some wrongful acts. I'll be keeping you updated on Facebook and Instagram, so be watching for that as the trial progresses and concludes. Be watching, be praying, because this family And really all the family Sheila works with and that I work with, they need it. I want to thank you again for coming and sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. As always, it's a pleasure to work with you. Thank you, Lori. I love seeing you. And I love your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And again, 
If you have not listened to the Lauren Agee case and the other seasons of Without Warning, now that we're done here, feel free to go do that. Our Bible verse for this episode is Proverbs 1.5 from the Amplified Bible. The wise will hear and increase their learning, and the person of understanding will acquire wise counsel and the skill to steer his course wisely and lead others to the truth. That's why I share these true crime stories, so all of us can learn and understand how to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities safer. And then once we have that knowledge, we need to step out and help others, whether they're the victims of crime or someone in a vulnerable population. So our practical action step this week is to apply what we learned today in someone else's life. Do you recognize alarming behavior in someone you know? If they're in your household, please reach out for help by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. Or you can text START, that's S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. If it's someone in a friend or family member's household, let them know that you're a safe person to talk to and encourage them to call these numbers. If for whatever reason you're not able to speak with someone directly, you can always call your local law enforcement and ask them to perform a welfare check on the household. Early intervention can make all the difference. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've got links to others that Sheila's been in. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share this episode and when you subscribe and give me a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.